0: welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik karnak Today we have a special bonus edition for you, bringing some of the conversations that Christiana and I had during the UN General Assembly week. Thanks for being here. So last week was, of course, both the UN General Assembly and also Climate Week in New York. And although most of us didn't have to go further than our living rooms to attend, some big ambitious announcements were made, not least, of course, China's transformative commitment to be net zero by 2060, which we've already discussed in previous episodes of this podcast. Now, of course, it's not just governments that need to step up. Business does too. And through the race to zero, more and more are doing just that. And for this bonus episode of Outrage and Optimism, we wanted to give you an insight into how this is happening through a number of discussions that I had last week with leaders from the We Mean Business Coalition and also with Cara Hurst, VP of Sustainability at Amazon. But first, as I was jumping from one Zoom to the next, Christiana, of course, was even busier. And as part of the Climate Week sessions, she caught up with Alok Sharma, President of COP26 and UK Business Secretary, to get his take on how the climate agenda can be accelerated in a time of converging crises.
1: So President Designate, uh, thanks for an opportunity to have a quick chat today. Um, I I don't know that you are aware of this, but you won the lottery because I am old enough in this process, uh, many decades, to remember when the idea of global stock tags originally began to germinate. And it took several uh, several years, actually, to continue to nurture that idea and understand what the role was going to be of the global stock tax and the periodicity and the transparency and the accountancy, all of that. Um, and uh, eventually, that was then included in the Paris Agreement, as you well know. And at that time, when we were working on that text. We, you know, it it was the idea of the first global stock take was only an idea, but you have won the lottery because you will preside over the first global stock take, which is quite a responsibility on your shoulders because you will be setting the standard for all of the other global stock tanks to come. And and it is a huge responsibility on your shoulders because not that we could have predicted this, and it's certainly not included in the Paris Agreement, but you are doing this in the middle of the unprecedented pandemic, in the middle of an economic paralysis, the likes of which we have never seen but you're also doing this, in all of a whole global process of green recovery packages, or I put the word green in there because that's my wish, but certainly recovery packages. So I would just love to hear from you how we are definitely in a crisis, but as we know from Chinese wisdom, every crisis is only an opportunity. Um, And I would love to know from you, both sides, how you have experienced this as a crisis, but also how you are moving through it to convert it into a historical opportunity.
2: Uh, you're absolutely right. We are living in quite unprecedented times. Uh, there's no doubt about that at all. Uh, and uh, you know, I came into this role uh, in the middle of February. And um, one of the first events that I went to within literally a matter of days was at, uh, at Wilton Park, uh, which, uh, as you know, is where the Foreign Office uh, in the UK has its uh, conference centre, uh, and I had this uh, unique privilege uh, to be able to meet in that one meeting. Uh, um, you know, everyone from uh, Laurent Fabius to Laurent Stiviana to uh, Manuel Coelho Vidal, uh, you know, all of everyone who sort of steeped in in uh, in previous COPs. and, and uh, that was uh, a, a, sort of a wonderful occasion and a great sort of learning process in a very short period of time. I then um, had an opportunity to go uh, in, uh, early on in March to uh, the UN, I had an opportunity to meet uh, with the, the representatives and, and, of course, address the UN, UN as well alongside the, the uh, Secretary General. And um, what was uh, really interesting about that was the conversations that I had and this real desire for us to make COP26 a success, uh, for us collectively uh, to work. To tackle climate change and it was also actually a really poignant visit because when i was in new york the news uh, came through that the first uh death in the uk from covid had taken place uh, and uh, incredibly sad uh, but of course what was uh, you know even more poignant was the fact that this was an individual uh who had lived uh, in the area that uh, i represent as a as a member of parliament uh, and um as you say, you know, since, since that time in early March, we have uh, had this you know, unprecedented time. Uh, governments, ministers uh, across the world working night and day. Um, but I think if we, if we look at the, 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 sort of sort of, the sort of packages that have been coming out, uh, absolutely, I think they are underlining this green recovery. And I do think we are at that uh, tipping point where business, civil society, uh, individuals, but also governments are realising that we do need to build back better. And from a UK perspective, uh, you know, we've set out some of those uh, green measures uh, in terms of that green recovery. Uh, And I I feel confident, actually, that we are at that point uh, where we're going to go forward collectively uh, and achieve uh, what I think, you know, perhaps some months ago we wouldn't have thought that was possible, and that is the momentum for a green recovery.
1: I'm curious to know your experience, because outside of the European Union, and you must speak to all of these governments, that is your responsibility, do you see an equal understanding or at least an emerging understanding on the part of governments of both the impact of recovery packages on the carbon intensity of the global economy over the next few decades, as well as how can they leverage those recovery packages to converge the solutions for so many crises.
2: Despite the fact that we've been in this, this uh, COVID crisis period where, uh, you know, we are doing everything short term to support businesses, support livelihoods of our, our people. Uh, of course, I mean, the, the climate crisis hasn't taken time off and um, I have spoken, had um, uh, some bilateral discussions with uh, uh, over 35 uh, countries, uh, ministers in 35 countries, and we are continuing that engagement uh, as well. And I'm very keen in those conversations to emphasize that actually if ever there was a time to come forward uh, with green recovery packages, this is it. And you will have seen uh, yourself, you know, the, the, uh, the polling, the opinion polling that has gone on, uh, internationally as well, where uh, actually it doesn't matter where you are in the world, uh, this is that, that moment where populations across the world want this to be a lasting recovery and a sustainable recovery as well. And that, of course, means a, a, a green recovery. So I'm very keen when I have those conversations to uh, tell fellow ministers that uh, we need to come forward with ambitious NDCs, uh, with ambitious long-term strategies. But of course, in in terms of the packages that governments are announcing right now they need to have very much uh, a, a sort of uh, a green thread, if I can put it, uh, through uh, you know, all the announcements that they're making. And I, and I think that, that is recognized. Um, and you so you've seen that in, in countries in Europe. Uh, You're seeing that in, in countries in other parts of the world. And of course, now ultimately, it's also uh, up to each of us as uh, individual governments to do our bit and from a UK government, as I said, uh, you know we've set out proposals, uh, and we will be doing uh, you know more of this in the in, in the coming months. So I am actually hopeful. And you made a really important uh, point there about businesses, and businesses are actually driving this change uh, themselves uh, as as well. Um, we've set up a a, a business advisory council uh, made up of international business leaders. I had the first meeting uh, last week. Uh, And again, they are absolutely galvanized around this. And there is a recognition, firstly, because it is, of course, the right thing to do to set uh, science-based targets getting to net zero. But ultimately, what I think many businesses also realize is uh, that it is good for the bottom line as well in doing this. So I I do think we are at that sort of inflection point where uh, everyone is coming together and recognizing that we need to have this green recovery.
1: I also wanted to ask you um, about the UK NDC, because this will be the first time that the UK presents its own NDC post Brexit. And uh, the European Union has already come forward with where they're going to be. I believe I have been uh, aware of the fact that the cabinet in the UK has already made a proposal for a, a, a rather ambitious NDC, but that is only a proposal. Um, and so I was curious to know what you can share about that process of the UK coming forward with a strong and ambitious NDC.
2: You will, you will forgive me if I if I don't go into the details of the discussions that we're having Uh, in in cabinet. What I can tell you is is the process. Uh, Look, firstly, I I do recognise that um, as a presidency we we need to show ambition ourselves, uh, just as we're asking others to do. Uh, And actually, in terms of the process, uh, we, uh, our prime minister, uh, set up uh, two committees uh, when it comes to climate action. It's the first time we've done this uh, in in a UK government. Uh, One is a strategy committee which looks at climate action. Which the Prime Minister chairs. Uh, the other is a implementation committee, uh, which I chair. And, and sitting on these committees are the uh, Cabinet ministers who are responsible for departments, which themselves have responsibility for uh, parts of our economy. Which, of course, uh, uh, you know, we need to address uh, emissions. So, uh, transport, um, agriculture, housing, uh, and uh, we are you know, systematically going through, uh, looking at. Uh, uh, what policies we need to put in place uh, uh, to enable us to meet our carbon budgets. So there is a lot of systematic work going on. Um, uh, but and I, and I understand the, the desire uh, for us to, to come forward and, and people to know where we are. But I, all I can say to you at this stage is that we are working very hard. We're working very hard. And um, uh, I hope uh, uh, in due course uh, we will be able to come forward with, uh, with, with something uh, positive.
1: I'm trying to pull the threads together of this conversation. And it seems to me that what we've been talking about from different perspectives is um, the emergence of what can be recognized as a virtuous cycle here where governments are beginning to feel the confidence to move forward, where corporates are definitely in the lead, um, pushing. Um, Very interestingly, where uh, individuals and citizens have much higher expectations, especially now in a post-COVID world, much higher expectations, both of governments as well as corporates, and where their expectation is the, the hard... Um, wall that used to divide corporates from governments is actually coming down, my senses, because corporates are now being expected to contribute to the environmental and social solutions in addition to their own profitability. It's just no longer enough to just be profitable. You have to put profit, people, and planet on your bottom line or else you're just not going to be blessed by social tolerance and certainly not by client preference. Um, But from governments, um, I also see that there is a lot of expectation of citizens of their governments to stand up and act more responsibly in in protection of of their citizens' interests and well-being. And so that for me, and, and sorry, and the third leg of that, of course, is the financial sector that is beginning to see that the relationship between risk and reward has completely changed around, and uh, that they cannot continue to put uh, capital into high-risk stranded assets um, that are going to deplete their um, their value of their investment portfolio or of their or of their assets. So those three pieces seems to me are really working better with each other. They were always there, and they've always done sort of cross boundary collaboration. But my sense is that there is more and more awareness. Those are three people, uh, three, three pieces that are um, together creating this virtuous cycle uh, of a uh, of a race to the top, and uh, and and the sense of urgency that science has been giving us for such a long time is now beginning to rob uh, off on those three sectors as well. I I have a sense that urgency is now really beginning to. Uh, to penetrate into decisions of all three. Um, is that your sense, or w- would you agree that there's a virtual cycle that is starting here and hopefully that the speed and scale of that virtual cycle is increasing?
2: Uh, yes, I, I would agree with that entirely. And, and I think what you are, you, you, you're you're talking about as a phenomenon is something that is, is is very live, and I think it is actually speeding up. And you know, quite rightly, uh, people have expectations of their governments, they have expectations of, of businesses. Uh, and uh, from a, a COP perspective, I'm very keen that uh, COP26 is as inclusive as we possibly can be. Uh, I think that's absolutely vital. And I think the voice of civil uh, society, sort of the, the voice of youth, uh, the voice of indigenous peoples, that absolutely has to come through. That That is, for me, that is uh, uh, a, a non-negotiable uh, issue. We, we need to make sure that... Uh, uh, the, 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 our people are able to speak up and their voice is actually heard. And as, as part of this, one of the things that we are doing is set a, setting up an uh, advisory group uh, on, on COP26, again, an international advisory group uh, bringing together uh, youth and civil society, and we'll be uh, launching that that uh, shortly. Uh, and I want to hear from them, and I want to hear uh, you know, their ideas, and we want to try and incorporate that uh, as part of, of COP26. Uh, but you know, again, businesses, when I had my discussion with our, our business group, um, you know, we concluded that actually what we can't do is just have these meetings in silos. What we need to do is put together uh, the businesses together with uh, the, the youth, together with civil society. And I want to be doing a lot more of that over the, the, the coming year. And one of the points that I make in every single conversation that I have whether it's with businesses or with governments or with um, NGOs or civil society or youth groups, is that uh, success at COP26 is going to belong to all of us. Uh, Yes, the UK and our friends in Italy, we we are sort of uh, organising from a presidency point of view, uh, but I'm very mindful of the fact that this needs to be entirely collaborative and we need to make sure that at the end of that process, everybody feels involved and everybody feels that we have achieved something lasting. Uh, and if we can do that, uh, I think we will absolutely be able to look at each other uh, and say, yes, uh, we made this a success.
1: Well, I would I would certainly agree with you. And I, I think you have uh, totally um, stepped into the role of co-president uh, so beautifully with that as your North Star, because that is... Um, Exactly, the, the the role and uh, and the responsibility of the COP president is to to lead in collaboration uh, and uh, and lead and actually and foster uh, the collaboration and the co- and the collective success as you as you see it.
2: Wonderful! Thank you so much, Christina. I'm so pleased that I have you alongside me on this journey over the next 14, years. Absolutely! Months. Thank you so much. See you again soon. I know.
0: Thank you. Bye. So that was Christiana in discussion with COP26 President and UK's Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Alok Sharma. And I have a feeling that we will be talking to him again on this podcast before too long. And now for a look at how business is responding to the climate crisis and how bold corporate climate leadership has never been more urgent than in this decisive decade. There are five very short conversations coming up with leaders from the We Mean Business Coalition Partners, and also with Cara Hurst, VP of Sustainability at Amazon. We kick off with Maria Mendelucci, CEO of We Mean Business. Hello, and welcome to a discussion on what business needs to do to lead on climate change in the next 10 years. I'm Tom Rivett-Karnak. I'm the co-host of the podcast, Outrage and Optimism, and I'll be joined in the next hour by the partners of the We Mean Business Coalition. We Mean Business, of course, is a group of nonprofits working with business to take action on climate change. And I know from personal experience how powerful this group can be. In the lead-in to the Paris Agreement when I was at the UN, We Mean Business were the key entity coordinating the business engagement in climate leadership. And I know that's something that continues to today. So Women Business is now launching the Climate Leadership Now Report, which is a renewed call to action for businesses. In the next hour, we will hear from Maria Mendeluche, the CEO of Women Business, Halla thomas Dotter, the CEO of the B-Team, Cara Hurst, the head of worldwide sustainability at Amazon, Claire O'Neill, managing director of energy and climate at WBCSD, and Mindy Luber, the CEO of Ceres. So to kick off, we're going to turn now to Maria Mendeluche, the CEO of Women in Business. Maria has recently joined Women in Business as CEO from the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. She's also held senior positions at the Economic Bureau for the Spanish Prime Minister, in the CEO's office of Iberdrola, and at the International Energy Agency. So Maria, this is the first climate week of the all-important 2020s. We know the hugely consequential nature of this decade and will only be successful if business plays its role. What trends do you see in corporate climate action? Looking back, say, over the last five years since Paris, what's changed and what do you see unfolding?
3: Thank you, Tom. A pleasure to be with you today. When Women Business was formed in the run-up to the Paris Agreement, corporate climate action was limited to a few pioneer companies like Unilever or IKEA. And there wasn't a widespread understanding that the benefits of climate climate action eh, will bring uh, performance growth and business opportunities. Now these things have changed. Companies from all sectors, including the most challenging to abate, are coming to both action, action, uh, climate action. When companies first set the RE100, they thought it was a dream to be 100% renewables. Now we have the Apples and the Googles that have reached 100% well in before what was expected. In total, around 1,300 companies represented one quarter of the entire global economy are now committed to take climate action. So it is true that there has been a mobilization of business action, but this is not enough. As we know, we are entering into the decisive decade and we need to halve emissions by half. This means 27 gigatons of CO2 that we need to remove. So we need to step uh, climate leadership now. And we can do it in three ways. First, companies need to set the highest levels of ambitions. To be aligned with 1.5 is just the, it's the North Star, but it's going to become mainstream. All business need to be there. We need to accelerate that race to zero, to be net zero as soon as possible, like the climate pledge, being net zero by 2040. We encourage many companies to join this movement and to even do it faster. It's not only about being ambitious, it's also about acting upon. And so it's very encouraging when you see these commitments, when they say, okay, I'm going to be net zero and I'm going to procure electric vehicles and I'm going to move to 100% renewables 24 by 7. Or I'm going to integrate climate action in my company's strategy and uh, et cetera. So we are seeing very recently, yesterday, 150 companies. They sent a letter to the European commission asking to increase the emission reductions that the European Union should do by 2030 from 40% to 55%. And we saw the commissioner referring to this message. We need more and more voices standing up. We need those voices to be consistent. We need business to say the same thing in Berlin, in Madrid, or in Latin America. And also, we need business to convince their peers, because this is not something that an individual business can do alone.
0: There's been some positive signs, right, with the EU and China and other things, but it hasn't really been the kind of gathering momentum and pace that you're pointing to with with the business sector. Why do you think that the business sector has been able to continue this momentum of increased ambition?
3: There's one important fact. Five of the six largest companies in the world by market cap have set the ambitious climate targets to be aligned with 1.5, but to do it much earlier than what the science tells us. To me, that's quite impressive. And why is that? Well, I think because some of those companies are doing very well uh, financially, but also because the pandemic uh, has shown the vulnerability of our economic systems. And I think business and the people and society are realizing that they need to do something, that they cannot set the world to fail in the in the case of the climate emergencies. There is a business case. We're seeing it, we're hearing it in every single sector. It gives you competitive advantage if you if you are aligned with climate targets it gives you a strong strongest performance in the market as we have seen companies that have high esg commitments and actions perform better than their peers and its future profile the business and i think that's why we're seeing this kind of leadership today
0: And I love that you've included advocacy in what you've talked about there, right? It's so important and it's been missed until fairly recently as an important element. Of course, more and more people are thinking about it now. But business action is an end in and of itself, but also business playing that role to continue to push in a consistent way across operations and supply chain and trade associations for the right outcome. Do you think that business is now in the right place for that? Or do you think it's still a mixed picture?
3: Well, I think business now, I think three things. First, they are competing. There are, this mm. is the race to see they need to be, you know, better than the others. And that's great. A competition to be better on climate. We have not seen that before. But the second that within that competition, they realize they need to collaborate with peers and with governments. And finally, they need to engage with suppliers, with the full supply chain. And, and that's why we're going to launch uh, this week the SME Climate Hub, which is an initiative to to involve a million SMEs committed to net zero by 2050, but with a strong emphasis on reducing emissions in the next decade. If the SMEs don't move, then it's very hard for big multinationals to work. Another thing that is important is that the multinationals need to take a holistic approach to -hmm. climate action because um, they need to design processes to be net zero it's they need to embed circular economy as part of the designing because it is from the start of the designs of products and services that we can reduce emissions they need to understand the connections between the different systems that we need to transform we need to 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 advance on the on evs but for that we need to electrify energy uses and we need to have green electricity and i think they need to design a collective public private collaborations for maximum impact because there is a benefit of them collaborating in order to to reduce their emissions in the value chain.
0: Maria, thank you so much for kicking us off in this hour. Really, really appreciate your time to come and explain that and talk to us. Now, Hala thomas daughter is the CEO of The B Team, a group of courageous business and civil society leaders working together to transform the business world. I personally have experienced the power of The B Team. In 2014, a group of leaders came together as part of The B Team and set an audacious goal for net zero by 2050, which was unthinkable at the time. That was the real leadership position that inspired the world and in a very, very significant way, ultimately transformed what would become the Paris Agreement and made it much more ambitious. So I've seen how the B Team punches above its weight and continues to do so. But Halla herself is a business leader, entrepreneur, investor, ran to be president of her native country of Iceland, and throughout her career has focused on purpose-driven and principled leadership. So Halla. Welcome. It's so good to see you. We're going to dive straight in. We don't have very long. Um, And what I want to ask you first is that one of the things you do is you improve the quality of leadership in the world on critical issues. So I want to start by asking, how are you feeling about the state of courage and leadership in the business community to face these issues and face them in an interconnected way?
4: I am a stubborn optimist like Christiana. And I would like to say I feel great. But there is no question that we need to transform the way we lead. We need a lot more courage and greater accountability and leadership everywhere. But we also need to become more holistic. We cannot solve the climate crisis without addressing the unsustainable levels of inequality in the world. We cannot separate these two issues. And I think we've done that for too long. So I think any good leader now understands that there's no business beyond planetary boundaries, nor is there any business in a world with a broken social contract. And that's where we're at. And I believe there is a critical system error that has gotten us here. And that error was started in 1970, so 50 years ago, by one man who put out an essay and said, the only purpose of business is to serve its shareholders and maximize shareholder wealth. This man was Milton Friedman, His essay is known as the Friedman Doctrine. And since then, this has been the software of how we lead and do business. And it has left us in this dire state, facing convergence of crisis. So I think what we need, Tom, is an economic reset. Mm. We need to shift away from the shareholder primacy idea and into what I would call stakeholder governance
0: Now these interconnected issues are getting so bad of inequality and wildfires and pandemics and everything else. Do you think the penny is dropping on the need to knit these things together and address them in the round?
4: I believe so. And uh, I've had the privilege of working with hundreds of uh, partners and allies um, in a movement called Imperative 21, where we have really been taking a look at this moment we're in and asking ourselves, how can we drive this system change, how can we reset our world so it works for climate, so it works for people, so it works for black people, so it works for women, so it works for private sector, governments and citizens alike. And we co-created in a massive movement, something that we're uplifting now 50 years after Friedman put out his theory as our new vision of the future. And that is a world where we recognize our interdependence, understand that people, planet and our economies are interdependent on each other. None of them can thrive without each other. And that we understand the interdependence of private sector, our governments, and citizens alike. And that's the first imperative, interdependence. Mm -hmm. Second one is that we invest in justice, that we actually leave behind male stale and pale leadership and decision-making and start bringing people around the table that actually understand the challenges we're facing And last but not least, we need to start accounting for stakeholders. We need a new definition of success in business. And it is my view that that needs to be and is looking like it's going to become ESG. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's not enough for us to address environmental issues if we don't address the social issues or if we don't change how we govern. We have a great framework for the E, TCFD, and companies should be embracing that as the new disclosure that they transparently share with the world, but we have been struggling with the S. And yet it is the S that has probably led to lack of progress on facing our climate emergency because people are feeling like they are left even further behind when we talk about it in the way we've talked about it. And last but not least, when it comes to governance, I think we could be very helped if we started to look at the time horizon of business through the next generational lens, because Mm. the quarterly reporting that Milton Friedman theory um, basically uplifted, uh, the short-termism has left us chasing a narrow definition of success only for the short-term, only for the shareholder, and hence climate crisis, hands broken social contract, hands low
0: trust. It's not always easy to face down some of those forces of the past and embrace the future. There are structural reasons why it can be scary to do that for an individual CEO, which is why leadership is so important. So how do you help them meet the moment with as much humanity as they need to, to push through it right now?
4: I ask them to talk to their children. Or their grandchildren. Okay. And I ask them to listen. And I have found, Tom, that most of the courageous, accountable leaders out there, they have a story about how their daughter, their son, or their granddaughter woke them up. But I find that in the last six months, I don't need to ask that question as often because mm. people are awake. COVID has accelerated or exposed our brokenness. But in that brokenness, it has also cracked us open and the light is coming in. We will never have a moment like this again. We are printing trillions of dollars. We have to direct them to build that inclusive green and just transition that the next generation expects, demands, and deserves. We're going through the greatest wealth transfer to women and the next generation, and you will no longer be viable to any of those stakeholders unless you get this right and travel through the portal to this new world.
0: Hala, thank you so much for joining us. That's such an inspiring message. Uh, Thank you for all the amazing work you do and look forward to seeing you again soon. So next we're gonna speak to Kara Hurst, the VP of Worldwide Sustainability at Amazon. And Kara has been in that position for several years and really has led a profound transformation inside Amazon in terms of dealing with the climate crisis. Now, Amazon, of course, is one of the world's largest companies, vastly complex in terms of operations and supply chain, with more than a million people around the world. And actually, just to kick this off, a year ago, Cara, together with Jeff Bezos, approached Christiana Figueres and I with a view to partnering on this new initiative that they were calling the Climate Pledge. And Christiana and I thought long and hard about it. We looked at what was being proposed. And in the end, we made a decision that we would dive in and we would partner. And the reason is the transformation and the speed and the scale of it that is being proposed by Amazon. Amazon will be net zero by 2040. That is Paris 10 years early. Cara, welcome to the session.
5: I find myself in, uh, I think, a very lucky position to be partnered with you and Christiana and the team at Global Optimism. One of the things that we are um, certainly inspired by the Paris Agreement and really excited about is Uh, the opportunity to drive this level of ambition at a company the size of Amazon and think about How do we really uh, take the scale and the size and the complexity of a company like Amazon and use that to say if we can go as fast and as far as we are planning to go in a a net zero 2040 world, um, we want to inspire others to come along with us. So I think the Climate Pledge overall is an invitation more than anything else to a conversation around ambition Um, It's a gold standard kind of bar around what companies of our size and our scale can do. And it's um, a community, truly, that I think we're all co-creating and building together that will be solutions driven um, and will set a high level of ambition around um, what we can come together and do. And I'm happy to talk about of the things that we've uh, done along the way around that which include the right now climate fund on natural climate solutions which include investment in electric vehicles uh, the climate pledge fund that we launched in june Um, we've got a lot of mechanisms that's how we work at amazon we create a foundation of data and science and then mechanisms to deliver on it
0: and what would you say i mean i'm sure there's many companies watching who've maybe set a 2050 target And there's relatively less that have gone to 2040. But of course, science is demanding that we find a way to develop more and more ambition. What would you say to those companies that are considering increasing their ambition from 2050 to 2040?
5: Well, first off, I'd say you can do it. Um, and the more uh, companies that come along in this, the more possible it becomes. So I think that there's um, a real signal that companies, when you come together, consent. And we've known this for a long time. Um, you know, there are plenty of business coalitions, like We Mean Business, that we're partnered with. They're doing an excellent job of consolidating this level of ambition and not only through companies, but their value chains and their supply chains sending those signals. And so we feel like the Climate Pledge is a very strong signal in that direction. Um, And that taking that extra leap and that extra level of ambition, it inspires people inside of your company as well. The
0: Amazon that you are trying to create is sort of unfolding and being created at the moment. And there are bits that you would be the first to admit aren't there yet and other bits that are coming on. When you look forward, What does the Amazon that's really done this in 10 years' time look like, or 10, 20 years' time? It's going to be quite different to the firm that's there today, right? What can you tell us about what that Amazon looks like?
5: I've been here six years and every six months, every year, we're a different company. Um, So I have no idea in 10 years uh, what (laughs) we'll look like. I do know that we will have invented things that do not exist today. I know that we'll be in new businesses. We'll be serving customers in different ways. I think that we'll see more of a partnership um, throughout our entire value chain. I would really love to see that piece come to fruition. I think um, Mm -hmm. having been in sustainability for a long time, there's um, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of energy and a lot of intention in partnering throughout the value chain, and it has not yet come to fruition. We're driving the technologies. Um, We're going to need some of the bigger pieces, the built environment to evolve Um, the infrastructure to evolve, these are things that companies are not going to be able to do, but they require partnership with governments, with communities, multiple sectors involved. And I I think we will see a lot of that come within the next decade. So at Amazon, what I'm hoping is that we're a driver of that um, and that we're going to continue to push forward um, and see transformation of our transportation networks, transformation of our products, um, and transformation of the communities where we live, work, and operate so that everything that we're doing inside the company really extends out to our, our communities.
0: Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you very much. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. So now we're gonna talk about moving forward from commitment to action, because of course, after making ambition clear, Businesses need to shift action and delivery. And that process of innovation and change done right can unlock business transformation to be a leading part of the economy of the future. Now, to talk about this, it is a huge pleasure to introduce Claire O'Neill. I got to know Claire during her tenure in government, where among much else, her leadership and tenacity secured COP26 for the UK. She was the Minister for Energy and Clean Growth in the Conservative government and prior to that worked in the private sector at Bank of America and McKinsey. And so who else better than to take up the role of Managing Director for Climate and Energy at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development? The reality is that this is a very challenging moment for business coming through the pandemic. And you know that very well from the roles you held previously and your view of the economy. Why is this also, therefore, the moment that businesses should double down and go big on climate.
6: This is the challenging question, isn't it? Why should businesses be changing, particularly given the backdrop of what has been a very difficult economic climate that will continue? And really, um, three quick points. One is, as you and Christiana so often say, this is the crucial decade. This is the make-or-break decade that will show us whether we are capable of achieving a future that is within those sustainable boundaries or whether we are facing a future for which we have no experience as a human species who has only been settled and agrarian for 5,000 years. And the other thing, the second point is that COVID, I think, has given us a proof point, which is extremely useful for so many businesses. You know, we have basically artificially created the sort of drop in energy consumption And greenhouse gases that we would need to deliver every single year going forward for the next two decades if we are to hit net zero by 2050. And I don't think we can empty the planes more than once. And I think what is starting to resonate now around the boardrooms is wow, we did it and it's not enough because we have to keep doing it. And by the way, this is extraordinarily difficult to deliver. So a real sense of all of us finger pointing and saying who goes first and what are the drivers, we are looking at ourselves now, I think, to realise that the solutions have to come from within. And the third point, and you reference my tenure as the uh, COP26 president-designate, amazing work still being done with that group. Um, But this is a tricky diplomatic climate to be operating in. And I think we will see some really important breakthroughs. I'm really encouraged by what we're hearing out of China, thanks to the amazing work of the EU. But, you know, this coalition of the willing amongst governments governments that we wanted to forge to make COP26 the real breakthrough moment diplomatically is even harder to do and all of this, for me, is resonating very strongly with businesses, now my members as the part of the WbcSD senior team, who are saying, "We've got to do this. You know we need policy signals, we need regulation, but we also need to be absolutely serious about our own trajectory and our governance and our disclosure and our investment portfolios going forward. And that, I think is, is extraordinarily exciting and, and it's happening right now.
0: It would be possible if you were, you know, an unenlightened CEO to see this as the moment to dial back on climate ambition and focus on other things. But I sense you don't agree with that.
6: I don't agree with that. I mean clearly there are sectors who for whom this is extraordinarily challenging. And whether you look at you know the aviation sector or hospitality or service provision or, you know, this these are sectors who have taken a really big knock and are having to think very hard about what their future look looks like. But but Equally, there are businesses who are actually doing rather well from a cash flow perspective. And we've seen markets at record high, businesses able to raise money. And I Mm -hmm. think almost a feeling like, well, everything else is up in the air. So why don't we really go for it with our ESG strategy and make those tough decisions that we know need to be in place? Oh, and by the way, future-proof ourselves from a resilience point of view. One of the key messages for the WBCSD membership base is, we need to think really hard about our exposure, our supply chain exposure, our resilience in terms of the way that our people work, our resilience in terms of our diversity, uh, how we treat our staff. And these questions are now it's a perfect opportunity to actually actually think about them, think about the wonderful competitive nature now of companies saying, well, I'll take your net zero 2030 and I'll go back and I'll get rid of every single a- atom of CO2 we've ever emitted in our corporate history. This is great. You know, this is really good stuff. And by the way, that's not just greenwashing. There is a governance and investment structure behind that that I think stands scrutiny. And the more we can disclose that, the more we can work on these common metrics. One, just to throw in, as if I may, a very brief advertising point, one of the key questions for sectors is scope three emissions. How do we actually define this emissions pathway and our members are working together on exactly that, a pathfinder to really have very transparent scope three emissions in certain sectors. Sustainable businesses are better businesses. They are increasingly rewarded by markets, they're rewarded by being attractive places to work for employees. And I, you know, that that and frankly, they're rewarded by the sense of purpose people get from going to work every day. And that is wonderful. All too often, you know, we see promises made and reneged on or and frankly looked on the average tenure of a prime minister in the in the world is four years you know this is this is come and go politics um and so so there is a sense for me that if you're looking at what will actually stick over the long term you go to where there is strategy investment really clear governance and transparency and that is happening for me in so, not not all, but in many, many of the business of the boardrooms around the world. And, you know, then I, I think it helps deliver a more positive intergovernmental outcome because it allows companies to basically say to governments, if you do this, we will be really supportive. But I want to get on with it. I don't want to wait to define the perfect biological offset or the perfect a net zero trajectory for a sector. We need to get on with it. We need to take action. We need to be absolutely clear about what good looks like, but we can no longer afford to wait. So I think it's that shift really from talking to action that, uh, that has really attracted me to this job. And I'm hoping to help all of our members uh, with that action agenda going forward.
0: Claire O'Neill, thank you so much. Um, I'm sorry that these are brief um, interventions, but very valuable. Really appreciate you being here with us. Now we're going to talk about the issue of advocacy, and this could hardly be more important. It's one thing companies setting ambitious goals for themselves and their supply chains and their products, but if they don't also engage with governments and push for the kind of thoughtful, progressive policies that are needed to assist this transformation, then very quickly they can actually end up undermining their own efforts and making things worse. Now, someone who's been a huge rock star in this for as long as I can remember, someone I've always had huge admiration for, is Mindy Luber, the CEO and President of the Sustainable sustainability nonprofit, Sarah's. Sarah's works to mobilize the most influential investors and companies to tackle the world's biggest challenges. And Mindy has never shied away from tough challenges. And as far as I can see, the fact that the issue of climate advocacy is now so squarely on everyone's agenda is in large part thanks to Mindy's tenacity and leadership. Mindy, it's, it's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining. I'm going to jump straight in. Why does how a company uses its voice matter? in the transformation of the global economy to a low-carbon economy?
7: Right now, I think the message has to go out loud and clear. It is no longer okay to be a leader on climate and setting goals and changing your practices internally as a company. If somehow your government relations teams or your trade associations are working to kill climate legislation or laws, regulation, wherever you are in the country or in the world, period we can't have the pace and the scale of change we need if we're moving company by company by company in the end we need a level playing field we need everybody playing by the same rules and those rules are public policy changes that need to put in place and think about how absurd it is for a company to be saying i am a climate champion and the very same day their trade association trying to kill the most important climate policies that are on the books or being debated. It makes no sense and no longer can you be a climate champion without being part of the policy discussion. Large companies are incredibly well respected, as they should be. They have a very important role to play in society. They are listened to, they are heard. They can reach policymakers, they can reach hundreds of thousands of employees and millions of consumers. And they need to the, be part of the plan moving forward, not moving us backwards. You know, there are some policymakers who might still like to think climate change and acting on it as a bunch of tree huggers or environmentalists. We know that not to be the case. We know climate will have a profound impact on humanity, our families, our lives, our public health, and the economy. And so every company and investor needs to be involved and that's great, they should be involved, Their voice is highly respected. So there's a reason when we go up to Capitol Hill in the United States with 50 business leaders versus some of our closest colleagues in the environmental community. They are heard differently, their voice matters, and we need to bring that voice collectively around the globe.
0: And Mindy, when you say it like that, it makes such evident sense, right? You get a CEO that wants to go in a particular direction, they're setting out the vision for their company, they're pushing it through their operations and their supply chain. But so often, as you have clearly laid out, they are not aligning their political giving, their trade association membership, et cetera, with that strategy. Why is this so hard for companies? Because on one level, it doesn't feel like it should be.
7: Right. And you're right, Tom. You should be consistent. If a company says, we want to be a climate champion, we're going to set audacious goals and we're going to lead, then you've got to lead in ways that matter. Part of that is setting goals for your enterprise. Part of that is helping move the sector leaders, your colleagues, even if they're competitors, they need to move with you. But part of it is making sure we have practical, sound, progressive public policy, like a price on carbon. Uh, And that is clear and it's easy. And companies who want to lead need to be consistent on policy and not let their government relations office live with some old framing. It's time to get consistent.
0: Do you see signs now that companies are getting their house in order and they are being more consistent across all of their operations and their engagement with government?
7: We're starting to see companies engaged. Last May, we brought 85 business leaders to meet with 60 members of Congress, half of them on one side of the political aisle, half of them on the other. And those conversations were great. The business voices matter. So we are starting to see it. Uh, It's up to all of us to hasten that pace and really to remind our colleagues in the business community. Leadership requires all of what they're doing. So you can't say, I'm acting on climate, if at the same time somebody on your staff is trying to kill a price on carbon or other carbon
0: policies being debated. Six weeks from now, there's going to be quite an important election in your country. And all of us on this side of the Atlantic are increasingly sort of lying in the fetal position on the floor and feeling quite nervous about what's going to happen. But we're all behind you and we're all very excited about this potential transformation. What are you seeing in terms of business? Because if businesses are leading, surely this isn't about partisanship, but surely they have to go and support science over pseudoscience moving forward on this agenda rather than denying it. What are you seeing on that issue?
7: Well, I hope so, Tom. Ceres is nonpartisan, so we're not calling the wins and the loses losers. but we do have one candidate who has committed to an audacious, ambitious climate set of policies, who agrees with us that the first day in office in the new administration, the United States gets back into the Paris Agreement. Without our global partnership, we slow down everybody. And that is unacceptable. So I'm cautiously optimistic. And we will fight to make sure that one of the first things that happens along a long list of policy changes and regulatory changes, but the United States goes back to where it was and where it should be in partnership with the global community in support of the Paris Agreement
0: how are you reading the tea leaves on a Biden administration and how high up the agenda climate is?
7: Well, from what they say in the conversations we've had, it is very high up on the agenda. Their goals are audacious that they put out. Uh, and I believe it will be part of the first actions of the administration, specifically getting back into the Paris Agreement.
0: Mindy, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time and talk to us. It's so fantastic to have the benefit of your wisdom and your leadership thanks for listening everyone that's the end of this bonus episode of outrage and optimism we always appreciate you joining us you listening in please leave us a review if you haven't done already only takes a moment and join us as usual this friday we have a great episode i'll be back with christiana and paul we have actor and campaigner ted danson this friday don't miss it subscribe now